The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I've pulled an interview out of the archives from 2012, where I sat down with World War II pilot Ted Edwards. I always start off by asking your full name, your rank and your service number. So if you can give me your full name. Edward Francis Edwards. Known as Ted? Known as Ted, and your rank that you got to? I was a, oh, I was acting flight lift, uh, squadron leader, but I was basic uh, flight lift teams. Right. Okay. And uh, your service number? NZ four one two three zero three. Okay. And uh, what date? What's your date of birth? Eleventh of September, nineteen seventeen. And your place of birth? Bromford Grove, England. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yes, I come of a, of a Welsh family. The, my parents were Welsh. Okay, so your parents are Welsh. Mm. Right. And, and um, so, how long were you uh, in England before you came to New Zealand? I was just over six years of age. We came out in 1924. Right. Mm. Okay. And do you remember sort of coming out here? Do you remember the trip? Only as a six-year-old, you know, just uh, a bit on the, about the boat, the boat. Looked to be a huge thing. It was the uh, SS Remuera. I think it wasn't about. Uh, I think it's only about eleven or fifteen thousand tons. But to us, it was a huge thing. Right, right. And uh, did you um, um, sort of grow up around this Northland area? Yes, my father was a farmer uh, from uh, farmed in Wales and England. Uh, and when we came out, we 
moved down, went down to the Waikato and he leased a farm there for three years. Uh, but my mother had rheumatoid arthritis. It got worse down in the Waikato. And the doctor said, well, if you don't move it, you'll lose her. So uh, we moved up to Wangarei and that was in 1928. And uh, I was, uh, I did uh, just the end of my primary school teaching, uh, not teaching, uh, primary school uh, attendance. And uh, I went through the high schools here in Wangarei. Okay. What uh, part of the Waikato were you in? Uh, uh, Area called Hyrene, just outside Tiamatu. Right, right. <clears throat> what do you remember of your earliest memories of aviation then? Well, like a lot of others, uh, we sort of drifted into the war, the war drifted on, uh, and I had never been in an aeroplane in my life uh, until I joined the Air Force. And so the first aeroplane I was ever in was the Tiger Moth of Fenuapai, where I had three months basic training. Uh, that was my previous <laughs> flight experience. And what, so what uh, sort of date did you join uh, the RNZF? It was in October uh, 1940. Okay, so you're quite early on, really, in the war. Um, yes, medium early. Yeah. Okay, and, and then went to Canada for training. Right. For, for the, uh, the, the, uh, the final training. You must be one of the first courses to go to Canada, I guess. Uh, we were number four pilot's course at uh, Saskatoon. Right, okay. And what were you flying there? A plane called Cessna Crane, which is very similar to an airspeed Oxford. That, that size, a twin engine. Uh, so I, uh, uh, after the Tiger Moss, I went straight on to twin engines. And were they nice to fly, the cranes? Yes, they were designed uh, as a civilian airlines aircraft, uh, and uh, they were they were very nice, uh, very responsive to the controls. But uh, their undercarriage tended to be a bit weak if you handled it too roughly. Did you find out the hard way? No, no, <laughs> some of my friends did. <laughs> Okay. So how long were you there at Saskatoon? Until uh, December 1941. Um, so I was six months, after I'd been accepted, I was six months before I actually went into camp, which was in the April 41. Okay, and, okay. Uh, then uh, uh, after Penopa, I went to Canada. Right, I got you. Um, and tell me about Canada itself. What was that like, as a place? Well, to us it was a um, huge country, unbelievably huge. We went um, uh, via Panama, uh, Panama up to Halifax, and then we were three and a half days in the train, which was, to us was <laughs> a lifetime. Uh, and the, uh, the engine and the carriages were so much bigger than they are in New Zealand. New Zealand uh, uh, railway uh, carriages and, and engines uh, look like toys against them. And what about the um, sort of social life in Canada? It must have been a bit different from New Zealand too. Well, we saw very little. We were uh, we were on the station all the time. 
we were allowed off, I think, uh, Saturday afternoons or something like that, but very little time. Uh, so there was virtually little uh, socialising. Okay. Did you find things there that you hadn't seen before? They like I've, I've read like jukeboxes and. Oh yes, and yes. Uh, it was it was a different world to us. Uh, driving on the other side of the road, of course, created uh, endless confusion at first. Uh, but they were very good to us, and the, and the Canadian public were very hospitable every time they had a chance. They would invite us out to a function or something like that. But I was very, I was pleased. Well, we were the whole course. We were pleased to leave Canada. It was in the late November, uh, and it was starting to get very cold, and uh, uh, wasn't to our liking. But uh, what happened next was rather interesting. We uh, we set off from uh, Halifax, and about two or three days out. Uh, we ran into a convoy coming the opposite direction. We were in a, a smallish, uh, it had been a tropical fruit ship. It cruised at 17 knots, which was fast in those days. And so it was traveling on its own. And uh, we ran slap into the middle of a convoy one night and we were hit by a 10,000 ton tanker. Uh, fortunately, not a midship on, because it would have rolled us on. We were only 3,000 tons. We were lucky. Uh, but uh, the nearest land was Newfoundland and uh, we spent a day and a half doing about one knot an hour uh, getting to Newfoundland. But uh, uh, they patched it up by uh, uh, creating a, a new section of the hull outside the, the, the bend, outside the cave-in on the side and then just filled it up with concrete. <laughs> It sounded to me to be a bit Heath Robinson, but it kept the water out, so. Uh, and then uh, we, we uh, proceeded alone and we uh, went into uh, um, Liverpool, I think it was. Yes, Liverpool. Okay. Well, I just want to um, take you back slightly because I believe that when you were training in Canada, you had the opportunity to go. To, was it New York and see Nola Luxford and, and get to know her? Yes, it was uh, the final leave. Uh, now I'm not sure whether it's the end of Canada or whether it's in America and whether it's coming back to New Zealand. Okay. I'm not sure on that one now. Uh, but we did meet Nola Luxford and uh, now it was four New Zealanders were coming back to New Zealand. Okay. Uh, and that was when we met up with Nola Luxford. Oh, right, right. And she was a darling. She was marvellous too. And tell, tell us a little bit about her, what she had done for New Zealanders there. Well, she was the New Zealand liaison representative in New York. Uh, and uh, it must have been quite a, a good sort of a job from her point of view. But she was meeting the uh, New Zealanders who were being repatriated. And I suppose she would have been in contact with some of those that were also going uh, to England. But uh, I was coming back with three others. One was Nick Natich from Dargaville. Uh, I can't think of the other chap's names. From Wellington away. Anyway, um, we were coming back and uh, we came back um, through the Panama Canal. 
I reckon to bring us over the Rockies was going to be too expensive. <laughs> okay, um, so we'll just um, take it back now to where you were when you arrived at Liverpool when you went across to England. So if you take the story from there. We uh, landed New Year's Eve, 1941, and uh, travelled down to London, spent the night in London on Christmas Day. We went to Bournemouth, and that was, uh, we didn't see anything. We uh, stepped outside the Strand Palace Hotel to have a look at London. Well, it was dark, and it was foggy, and you couldn't see, your, you literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face. So we stumbled across, went into six, and decided we'd had enough. We couldn't see the traffic that was on top of them. Uh, so we came back to the hotel, and that was our <laughs> sight of London. <laughs> we, uh, we asked the policeman on the footpath if he could tell us where the Strand Hotel was after we'd been walking back towards it, and we, we didn't see it, we couldn't see it. And he looked at us, and he said, the Strand Hotel. And we said, yes, the Strand Hotel, the Strand Palace Hotel. Well, he said, if you turn immediately left and walk off those steps, you'll be in the front door. <laughs> you couldn't see it from the footpath. That's amazing. <laughs> but, uh, that, and that was virtually all we saw. Well, we went down to Bournemouth and uh, had to go to a few lectures and that sort of thing while they uh, decided where we, we were going to go. And uh, from there a group of us went up to uh, um, Grantham. And uh, we went through a further uh, training course there. And from there we went to OTU, Bomber Command, OTU, that was my first uh, touch with Bomber Command, uh, at Upward. In, uh, in uh, Cambridge here. What were you flying there? Blenheims. Uh, they first flew in 1937. They were, they were a good aircraft, uh, but uh, they were, had their limitations as far as war aircraft were concerned. Okay, so you converted onto them after flying the Cessna cranes. It must have been quite a step up, I guess. Yes, yes it was. Um, I, I, I liked the, the Blenheim, you got to like it after a while, I suppose you couldn't do much else anyway. <laughs> but they had the various models, the Blenheim 1 had a short nose and the Blenheim 4 uh, had a much longer nose, uh, different models. But uh, they were just good sound solid aircraft and uh, uh, there weren't, weren't any frills about them, there weren't, wasn't much in the way of comfort, but they, they, they worked well. So which ones were you flying, the, the fours? I, well, you started off on the ones uh, for conversion purposes, and then you went on to the fours and got a crew, a crew of two members plus the pilot. Uh, and that took uh, about three months. Uh, so that, that was the OTU. Were, were they much the same to fly, the short and the long nose versions? Oh, there's very little difference. Uh, really, the short nose was faster, it was the fighter-bomber. Uh, it was more responsive to the controls. Uh, and, and that was about it. The, the, the Blenheim 4 and the Blenheim 5 were 
uh, designed for light bombing purposes. So who, who were your crew that you got? Say again? Who, who were your crew when you crewed up? Oh my goodness me. <laughs> were, were they English or? No, no. Um, they were a complete mixture. I had one Scottish boy from Glasgow and uh, I had a, a, the other one was from London. And uh, you know, it's amazing how crews fitted together, you'd think that every crew being such a mixture that there'd be sure to be crews that would have fights and rows and wouldn't get on together. Didn't seem to work out that way at all. There was only one occasion where it, uh, I had any trouble. I went to the CO and said, well, if you don't change my navigator, I'm going to lose the rest of my crew. And so the, uh, the officers in charge of flying were understanding, very understanding. There was no trouble whatsoever uh, about doing that. Mm. Okay. So when you uh, finished the OTU, you would have got posted to a squadron? Yes. Which, which was that? Uh, 614. But that was in North Africa. So before I went then I had to go, uh, uh, went on to a, a, it was a ferry flight first of all. We were supposed to ferry aircraft to North Africa, but when we got there, we found we ferried ourselves as well as the aircraft, and they kept us. They were short of aircraft, but they were short of crews as well. They had a, a pretty rough time. There were four, four squadrons on uh, Bisleys, that's the Venom 5, uh, and they had a very rough time. Uh, and at the end of, so about the end of May, in 42, 43, 43. Um, uh, they were reorganised in North Africa and some squadrons went to Coastal Command, this was after the fall of Tunisia, and some went uh, joined the Desert Air Force. And I was one of the, I, uh, I shifted then to 18 Squadron, uh, which was in the part of the Desert Air Force. And we uh, bombed Pantelleria from Tunisia and we bombed Sicily. And then when uh, the Germans uh, withdrew from Sicily, we moved over to Sicily and then we were bombing up through Italy. Okay. Can you describe what the bombing um, was like? Were, were you going in low or was it quite high bombing? Or We were on what was called night intruders. Um, so we flew independently. Uh, we flew whenever the schedule was up on the flight board to say fly and uh, from that point of view it was interesting because we were completely the masters of our own fate. We were given an area to patrol and anything that we found that was of any uh, uh, action, well not necessarily action but of any, of any of the enemy, we would uh, attack it. And uh, if uh, we couldn't find any troops or camps, then we were we used to um, bomb tunnels, bridges, railway lines, or junctions, and anything to disrupt the enemy. We were a disruptive squadron, uh, basically to just uh, harry the enemy. Uh, was it pretty dangerous? Were you losing crews? Yes, because it was all night. And uh, first of all, they started flying only during the moon period, which uh, 
was only about three weeks out of the four weeks. But then they got a bit hungry after that and we had to fly uh, moon or no moon. And it was surprising without the moon how much you could see. There's a difference in colouring between the sea and the land. And uh, you can pick where you coast, cross the coast. And then there's always some idiot who's stupid enough to be lighting a cigarette like a sentry on duty. <laughs> and it's surprising how high you can see the flare of a, of a match when it's lit. Right. Mm. Yeah. How, how long were you doing that? How many raids did you do? Um... Uh, I did 72 bomber rations uh, altogether. Well, they were not all bombing. Uh, I had two patrols over the North Sea while I was in England for air sea rescue work. And then the, the flight out to Tunisia counted as two operations, so that's four. Uh, and uh, yes, the rest were, were, were bombing raids uh, and night intruder work. We, uh, we did a few daylight formation, uh, but only a few of those. I think we bombed Pantelleria and uh, in, in, in a formation work. Sure. Mm. Uh, what was actually at Pantelleria? Apparently it was an island of Tunisia, between Tunisia and, and uh, Sicily. Okay, and was it an Italian base or...? Well, I'm not sure, I think it came under Italy control in peacetime, but the Germans had occupied it. Right, right. So when you moved into Sicily, what was that like there? A shambles, quite frankly. Uh, there were broken smashed up vehicles and aeroplanes all over the place. It had been very heavily defended because the Germans were determined not to allow a successful landing by the Allies. Uh, the, the, uh, the propaganda value, of course, uh, was great from the Allies' point of view, but not so good from the Germans. And they were determined to prevent it or, and to prevent uh, any inroads from it. So they landed in force in, uh, in Sicily and uh, they took Sicily first. It only lasted about uh, three weeks, I think, that campaign, somewhere about that, not long. And then they invaded Italy and they did it mainly by crossing over the Messina Straits going up. Uh, up the, the toe and then up both sides of the of Italy. Right. And then as soon as it got up towards the north of Italy, up past Rome, we moved across to uh, uh, Italy. We were just stationed uh, in Foggia, which was yeah, on the east coast of, uh, uh, of Italy, about halfway up. Okay. And before you moved across, were you flying quite long distance raids over to Italy or at one stage, before the uh, occupation of Sicily and Italy, we were flying from U U uh, Tunisia right across the Med. It was a, quite a long distance, but uh, the only casualties that we had really, oh no, there were one or two were shot down, but uh, most of the casualties came from flying too low at night and hitting things. Right. It was, uh, it was a dangerous type of operation because it was extremely difficult uh, to, to see 
at night, particularly some of the weather. Were there night fighters looking for you as well? Yeah, well, night fighters uh, were out, yes, the Fockwalks. Fockwalks? 109s. Okay. Um, so tell me, when you got into Foggia, what was that like? It was pretty much of a shambles, really, because the casino uh, had just fallen, uh, which had been a stronghold, and the uh, Germans had moved up towards Pescara, uh, and uh, they were moved up about Rome. Uh, they'd been fighting all the way up the peninsula. It amazed us how well the Roman, the, the Italians, uh, had their roads made, but uh, they suffered a hammer in wartime. Did you get to um, mix with the locals in Italy or in Sicily? Very, very little. Some of the boys did a bit, but uh, not much. Uh, but we were being worked pretty hard, and uh, uh, bombing operations or operations in wartime is, uh, is very, very strenuous. I found at the end of a few months of it that uh, I was completely exhausted, completely. Uh, and and, and you, you're flying, I was going to say, on your nerves for quite a bit of the time. Because uh, it wasn't just a case of meeting opposition over a target. You were subject to night fighter, enemy night fighter uh, attacks from the time you took off to the time you landed. And that included, of course, all the way across the Mediterranean. So it was a, a very stressful type of flying. And you were still on the Blenheims uh, at this stage? Uh, no, not at that stage. After the fall of uh, Tunisia and the reorganising of the, of the uh, squadrons, uh, we moved on to Boston's. Now, the Boston was a much more powerful air aircraft than the Blenheim. It was American-built, Douglas Boston. And uh, it was very fast for those days. And uh, it was quite powerfully armed. We had four machine guns in the nose, which I operated with a single button on the control, uh, control column. Uh, a navigator in the nose. Yes, uh, he had one gun, I think. He didn't have much, but we had an upper turret that had twin uh, guns. And uh, we also had a, a fourth member. So they had another crew member to, to the Boston's from the Blenheims. And he used to lie flat on his belly and fire down backwards and underneath. And, uh, that took care of fighters who were trying to attack us from below coming up. Right. And that was a favourite move of theirs because a lot of the aircraft weren't armed uh, for defence against that mode of attack. Um, and it was a favourite method of attack of the Germans to come, come up from below and behind. And uh, it could be devastating, of course, if they hadn't got any means of answering it. 
but uh, Boston with this chap lying flat on his belly firing through an open hatch was quite a good answer. Did, did your guys ever um, hit any other aircraft, hit, hit the enemy aircraft? Uh, they said they did. <laughs> but it was a nice time and you were filing of, uh, silhouettes, you know, and then only for a matter of a brief second or two. Uh, so, uh, they were doing pretty well as they hit something. But they, they said they did, and I, I believed them. So how long were you at Foggia? Foggia? I left Foggia in, in the February, what would it be, 1944. Uh, my tour was over, and uh, some of the chaps went back to uh, Cairo in the Middle East, and some of us were shot back by Tunisia uh, and Gibraltar to England. And uh, I still had about 30 cousins living in England, and so I was rather keen to get to England and see uncles and aunts and things again if I could. Uh, so, I worked it so that I was on one of those that went back uh, uh, to Europe. And uh, when I got to uh, Algiers, no, Tunis, when I got to Tunis, they gave me two German POWs to escort back to England. Well, of course, that sealed the trip back to England, all right. Uh, but there, there were Surprisingly affable types. One of them could speak a lot of English and the other would have broken English. But they were still convinced at that stage that Hitler was going to win the war. Quite convinced. Okay. Yeah. And once you got back to England, what sort of role did you take on then? Oh, I was uh, instructing in, a, uh, in an OTU for a while. On Leyland uh, mainly, but also on. And then they put me onto Mitchell's, an aircraft I'd never flown before, and told me I was an instructor on Mitchell's. <laughs> what was the Mitchell like to fly? It was a rugged aircraft. It was a very strong aircraft. It carried a bomb load equivalent to a larger than a flying fortress, but didn't travel as far with it. It was heavy on the controls, heavier than a Boston, uh, but it was fine. It was very reliable, and it had this, uh, practically the same motors as a Boston did. Slower, of course, but when the many think it carried a six, seven thousand pound bomb load, it wasn't doing too badly. That's right. Did you? Um and was that, were you there sort of till the end of the war? Um, oh no, oh hang on. By the end of the war, I got back to England in January 1944. Uh, that was when I was instructing on Denham's and in uh, uh, Mitchell's for a while. But I had an application in to come back to New Zealand and uh, uh, 
high in the Pacific because uh, it was given to us then as an alternative. To, instead of doing a second tour in Europe, they were offering us the opportunity to come back to New Zealand and do our second tour against the Japanese up in the Pacific. So I opted for that. And I was back in New Zealand in January 1944. And, uh, oh yes, I went on to transport. <coughs> All right. Yes, at the Noah Pie. The Hudson's first and Load Stars. And then the C-47s, Dakotas. And uh, so I became a transport pilot. Okay. Must have been a bit of a change, I suppose. Oh, yes, it's a, it, it's a change, but I mean, you, you, at that age you're adaptable. And did you like the Dakota? Yes. It was a very reliable aircraft, easy to fly. Uh, it had a, a good carrying capacity. and. Uh, being American built, it was quite a comfortable aircraft to fly, I mean, upholstery and so on. Uh, okay. No, it's a good aircraft to Dakota. And I guess you, could, you would have gone all around the Pacific, got to see a few places? Yes. Um, the war was still on when, uh, when I started flying from Fenua Pai. I was on uh, 40 Squadron, no, 41 to begin with, and then 40 Squadron. Um, we had a regular schedule going up to uh, Rarotonga via Fiji uh, and uh, yes, and Rarotonga, Samoa. Uh, when the war ended, or in the latter stages, we extended it up to uh, uh, the Solomons, Green Island. And so on. We were more or less following the the wake of the uh, of the Allied uh, forces, and they were rolling the Japanese back. So uh, we followed up behind them, and uh, then I think I was came back to New Zealand. Yes, and that's right. Uh, after the war. Uh, I was still in the Pacific, at least based at Fenua Pine. And um, I left the Air Force in 1947, uh, in about April, uh, the New Zealand Air Force. Well, and uh, I took a four year engagement, uh, short service commission. Uh, with the Royal Air Force. I went back to England for four years. Right. What were you flying when you got back there? On Yorks, in a four-engine transport. Okay, what were they like? Um, reliable, quite heavy to fly, uh, good workhorses, uh, very good workhorses. They were, <clears throat> they were an excellent aircraft. Um, I think I would have probably preferred a uh, um, what was the, the Douglas Skymaster uh, for comfort, but so far as efficiency was concerned, the York was just as good. It had a, a loading capacity of something like uh, 10 tons. Yes, it was fairly good. Uh, its loading capacity in relation to its own power and weight was good. It had four Rolls-Moylan engines. So you would have uh, been involved in the Berlin airlift, I guess? 
Uh, yes, I did uh, 65 or 68 trips into Berlin, on the Berlin areas. What was that like? It, uh, was it quite a nervy place to go into? No, not Berlin itself. Well, we, all we thought of Berlin was the Gatow Airport. <laughs> we were given 20 minutes on the ground. Uh, from the time we were doing two, uh, let's start again. Uh, the English Royal Air Force uh, transport squadrons, there were four on them that were, they called them the heavy squadrons, the four engines, mainly Yorks. Uh, they were, went across to an aerodrome called Wunsdorf uh, for three weeks. Uh, and then went back to England for a rest for a week. Uh, but in those three weeks, they averaged something like um, uh, 25 to 30 uh, trips into Berlin. And uh, we were flying all the clock round. There was no break. Uh, we had shifts, depending on your flight, which shift you were on. You were, you're on your shift for five days, I think, and then moved around, moved around eight hours, three shifts, and you had done a complete 24-hour shift around the clock. And uh, that was all, all weather. Uh, that was my first experience of uh, top-down uh, landings, which was controlled by radar. I think the form of radar by the ground staff in Berlin. Uh, they were landing aircraft there at uh, every 30 seconds, I think it was. Mm. All weather, regardless. Yes, so they, um, we had a form of beam that we used to come in on, uh, but so the final 600 feet, they talked us down as well. They didn't want any crashes on the approaches and landings because that's a, an aircraft, you know, every half minute it would foul things up well and truly and then in the bad weather uh, they wouldn't let them stack uh, by doing uh, circuits, you know, uh, up to 10,000 feet or something like that. If you missed your landing, you just continued straight on and went straight back to your base. Well, it was more, more economic to do that. Even on the ground, uh, just all the aircraft taxiing in and out must have been fairly confusing first time around. Well, yes, it, it was, but the directions were fairly good. And it was a case of following your leader, and uh, if he made a mistake, the next half dozen aeroplanes would be behind him making the same mistake. <laughs> so did you fly in as a complete squadron, one after the other? Or? Yes. Yes. For, uh, six or eight machines, and then another squadron would do the next lot. Uh, and it was the same for coming back. It was pretty well organised. You couldn't have them all flying around independently. It would be sheer chaos. They, they tried it to begin with, and uh, it was so chaotic that the Americans put in some air marshal and the first thing he did was sent everybody home. <laughs> Said, now we start. 
but uh, they had it well organised. Yes, they did. What an amazing experience is to have had been part of that, I suppose. Oh yes, yes, that was uh, well. Only once in a lifetime that uh, they've never had an airline uh, airlift like it before or since. And it went for 15 months. It was, uh, there was no uh, no fly by night thing. Um, in all of your flying career, what do you think were your scariest moments? Oh goodness. My first operations. I think it was uh, largely a matter of interest, uh, fun, was not up to about that point. Uh, my first operation was bombing Tunis and uh, the Germans were trying to maintain their grip on North Africa. They didn't want to retreat across the mid uh, and uh, Tunis was a very hot spot. And, uh, that, that was my first introduction. They had the searchlights going, they had the, uh, the, the night fighters were up there. And uh, yeah, it was scary. We were bombing from about uh, three or four thousand feet. They were in the Blenheim, the Blenheim Fives, the business, which should never have been used as a four aircraft. <laughs> did, did you guys worry that you might be hitting civilians, like local Tunisians, that sort of thing, or was it just not cons considered? Not worried. Uh, we had to regard it as one of those things that happened in a war. Uh, we might or might not be killed, and the civilians were having to take the same sort of risks. It wasn't, uh, admittedly, they, they weren't trained for it, uh, but uh, they were in the unfortunate position of being caught up in a situation that they had no option in. And uh, I always felt sorry for them, but uh, you couldn't afford to be too sorry. It seems to me that they were in a bit of a different position from most people in Europe where the civilians didn't want to have the Germans there and supported the Allied cause, whereas I think the Tunisians didn't care about who, who was in their country. They didn't like anyone, did they? Well, that's about right. Yeah. Tunisia was uh, French. Uh, and the only people that seemed to get on well there were the French people. <laughs> uh, now, we were invaders. In their, in, in their country. Not liberators? No. No, they had nothing. Well, we were up to a point, but it was a minor point because, uh, you see, southern France uh, didn't have much trouble from the Germans. And so that applied to Tunisia and North Africa as well. Mm. Um, in the Pacific, did you have any trouble with weather problems, flying in the tropical weather? You got used to it. Uh, it was a different technique uh, altogether in the flying in cloud in the Pacific to what it was flying in cloud in Europe, because uh, there was a lot more turbulence we at the intertropical front. And uh, 
I think, like most of the others, I found the best way to tackle it was not to try and fight it. You just sit there, and if enough current took you 5,000 feet up, you went up 5,000 feet. You didn't try to stay at the same height. Um, I, one day I went, I had to fly through the dense tropical front, and I was flying at 8,000 feet in a Dakota. We went down to 5,000 feet. I couldn't do a thing about it. All I did was hold the aircraft level on the artificial horizon. Uh, I went up to 11,000 feet. And there was no way I could have stopped it without uh, possibly causing disaster. Because you, if you try to fight enough draft, you turn the nose down and you try, you, try to, uh, you, you try to maintain the speed which you can't. You, you, no. No, flying through a tropical front, you just sit there and take it and let it do what it likes with you. And that's the only way, the safest way to handle it. Okay. Um, are there any sort of stories that come to mind that we haven't covered yet? Anything that st stands out in your memory? Well, it's a long time ago. Uh, and memories are getting a lot uh, dimmer than they used to be. We had our share of fun, of course. Uh, we were, uh, had a bit of leave up in, in Tunis City a couple of times. Uh, I remember being gorgeously happy with a couple of my mates who three of us went up at the same time. I had leave, a week's leave in Tunis. Gorgeously happy, wonderful time. Couldn't give a damn for anybody or for anything. By that time, we were very well experienced, and uh, you get hardened, of course. But the, the Tunisians were reasonably affable. They were bit that friendly, but uh, they weren't uh, yeah, but, uh, angry with us either. Were there bars and that sort of thing that you guys could go to? With the bars and that sort of thing that you guys can go to and party up? Oh, yes, it, it was normal civilian conditions. In oh, normal is not the right word. Uh, civilian conditions, it was run by the several Tunisians themselves. It was a Tunisian city. Uh, and they had the, the bars and the nightclubs and various things. Um, yes. <laughs> Did you ever get into Cairo? No, no. From Tunisia, I went across to Sicily and then back to England. Right, right. You must be one of the few guys that fought in the Middle East that never went over to Egypt, I suppose. Well, that there were there were quite a few of us because it it was the uh, the, the the group that mainly that went from England to North Africa when the invasion of North Africa took place. There was a pincer movement. The one was from Cairo up towards uh, Tunis. The other was landing at Algiers uh, and moving towards the east towards oh, yeah. Tunis. You had this pincer movement. Yeah. The Germans had no uh, no chance of winning. They had no chance of holding it. They, uh, uh, they were being attacked from two fronts. They, uh, they just didn't have the power to hold the Allies. When you look back, at your Air Force career, both in wartime and peacetime, do you think if you had a chance, would you do it all again? Well, 
is. I think the best answer to that is, is to, to say it wasn't a matter of option at the time. You went where you were told to go, you did what you were told to do. Uh, the same circumstances, of course, would not happen again like that. Uh, there were moments when we were frightened, we were scared, no doubt about it. I think all air crew at some stage or other, they get scared, but then the, the, the secret of survival in flying is not to panic. Once you panic as a pilot, you've had it, and so is your crew usually. So you develop a, an iron control against any form of, of panic. And that's the only way you can survive. Those that couldn't do it, uh, either their nerve gave out or else they had some sort of accident. Okay. Um, and I believe that you've been fairly active in preserving the history of uh, various Air Force uh, chaps around Northland. You've written a book and that sort of oh, thing. Oh, yes, there's a copy of it over there. Uh, I remained fairly active in the, in the Air Force Association, uh, but uh, after the war, after being back for a while, I thought, well, you know, a lot of chaps I knew that I trained with uh, in various stations on various squadrons, I was on six squadrons altogether. Um, I thought, well, what happens to the chaps? who, you know, didn't come back, chaps who were killed. Where's the record of them? And uh, I got, I suppose, a bit uptight about this. I thought, well, you know, why should they just fade into oblivion? Uh, because of parts of the military records and nobody bothers to look at those, really. Uh, all, all trace, all memory of them disappear. And I thought, well, that's not just good enough. So that's when I started to... Uh, uh, start writing this book. I think I, I got a uh, hundred, oh, just over a hundred stories of different chaps from the north. I concentrate on the north, um, and uh, all air crew except one or two. And uh, that was uh, the why I wrote it, uh, just as a record for the air crew from Northland, and. Uh, it was amazing how many air crew there were from Northland. Actually, there were something about 300, which is a lot from a, well, from a, a peninsula with a small population, and it was a lot smaller then than it is now. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> Very well done. Well, so that, that, that was the way I felt about writing the book anyway, yes, just to make it a record of the chaps that I'd, I'd known. Fantastic. Um, I also understand, somebody told me once, that you collect uh, Air Force songs, is that correct? Yes, songs and cards. I've got a book of them. Oh, right. Well, when I say a book, a, 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 an A4 folder. Right, like a file. Yes, I, yes, I didn't pick it with me. Um, there's one section which I advise people not to read, read if they don't like abusive words. 
but I left out a few of the very dirty ones. And there were a few. That, it's great that that kind of, um, that part of the culture has been collected together because, you know, you know and I know that that sort of thing happens in, in the Air Force, but doesn't always get officially recorded or even unofficially recorded, so... Well, that's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I, uh, I think I've got a copy of my book there with the... Yes, it's just over a hundred year crew that I've got a story on, on each one of those. And the uh, frustrating thing was when I finished it and uh, had it uh, printed and published, uh, that uh, somebody would say to me, did you write anything about Jim so-and-so, you know, and I said, well, where was he from? Oh, from Dargaville. Never heard of him. You know, and, and I was amazed at how many chaps I hadn't heard of. And mind you, perhaps it is just as well. I think a, a hundred was enough anyway. <laughs> well, actually, I've done a very similar thing uh, oh, yeah. for Cambridge, um, where I'm from, and Cambridge District. Mm. And because of that very thing, I've made it a website rather than a book because I can keep adding every time that someone goes, oh, oh. do you know about such and such? And that works really well because uh, I'll put up a page on a person, but I won't necessarily know all the details. And then someone in their family will be doing a Google search and they'll find it and they go, oh, here's some photos or here's some information. So it keeps evolving and, and growing and, and that's a really good way to do it. Well, it would be. But then you see, my generation, we weren't computer boys. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's a, there's a few um, of the airmen on there, because I've got living and, and dead, uh, yeah, ones that didn't come back, and then ones that have died since the war, and ones that are still alive. And, uh, and there's a number of them that are internet uh, savvy, but there's a lot of them that aren't. So, um, But yeah, it's amazing what comes up, isn't it? And I, oh, I know exactly the, what you're talking about, because yeah. you, you do get that. Yes, it's the unofficial histories that I think are the most interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, official histories, official histories are meant for recording things there. Unofficial histories are meant to uh, describe events that happen to people. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, you get the, the real personal side in those unofficial ones. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look of course, you see, no sort of situation you see a, a lot of people, you meet a lot of people and you see a lot of things that you would never have happened to you under any other circumstances like that. Looking back over your flying career, what, what do you consider as the, your favourite aircraft or the best aircraft that you flew? Boston. Yes, without a doubt. Two uh, 1500 horsepower motors. It was a, uh, had a single and a very large tail, something like over 13 feet, uh, the rudder. And that gave you a terrific control. You only had to touch the rudder and the thing would just gently just move across a bit. As I said, they were very responsive to the control. So they were fully aerobatic, uh, except that the military didn't like us uh, doing the aerobats. And I, I, I did leave for Boston, which was strictly against the rules. I wasn't prepared to try and do a roll, uh, but they were, as far as the stress on the aircraft was concerned, they were fully aerobatic. Okay. The Mitchell, I don't think a Mitchell was aerobatic. But the Boston was designed as a fighter bomber. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've never even thought about one loop in this. Quite something. Yeah. But they were well armed with the four machine guns in the nose. They could uh, create a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ted. It's been a pleasure to sit down and chat with you. And I think we've probably covered most of it, I think. Oh, I think so. Yeah. It's been great. I'm thank you my memory is not what it used to be. <laughs> that's right. That's right. At least you remember to come. <laughs> <laughs> Just. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thank you. Right. Thank you indeed, Dave. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.